I was thumbing through some commentaries on the passage, and I came across one that was about Charles Haddon Spurgeon, who's known as the Prince of Preachers by many. And it was said of Spurgeon as he was preparing to expound upon Psalm 51 uh, that he would sit down and just gaze at the text for hours upon hours and then get up again without having written a single word. And that was because of the, the magnitude of this text and the weight of this text and the divinity of this text. And I thought to myself, if the Prince of Preachers struggled to expound upon Psalm 51, I'm in trouble. But then I was reminded, even by the text itself, that it's not about our abilities, but about God who works in us and through us. And so, if you will, just join me in prayer one more time as I seek God's help uh, for me and for us to get what God has for us this morning. Father, we, we thank you. We thank you for being a generous God, a kind God, a merciful God. And Father, I just pray that you would uh, take my words now. Um, Father, I pray that they would be uh, in line with your will. And Father, that you would do a work in our hearts as we look at this passage on repentance and that you would accomplish your will because apart uh, from you being in this, uh, it will have no fruit. But if you're in it, Lord, great things will happen. And we pray that that would be the case this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. So I had the opportunity a few weeks back to accompany my middle child, Tinley, on um, a, a, a field trip. We were going to uh, Woodbury to watch James and the Giant Peach. And for some reason, I decided it would be a good idea to ride the bus with her and 30 other preschoolers. I quickly began to regret my decision as I boarded the bus and the screaming and the yelling was at a level that was higher than for my comfort. And then the seat that I just happened to select was the one over the wheel well, so my knees were crammed up against my chest and Tinley of course wanted to sit by her friends in the aisle seat, so like a good, good dad I let her have that seat. Um, and things were going okay as we uh, left the school and started heading out. Uh, until about, we got about halfway there, and one of the teachers started running to the back of the bus with a trash can. And I thought, oh no, one of these kids is getting sick, and that smell is going to permeate this bus, and I'm going to be stuck on this bus with that smell. But thankfully, that child was able to hold their breakfast. Um, it didn't actually transpire the way that I thought it might. Um, but then, when we got a little bit closer to our destination, I noticed uh, that the turns were starting to get a little bit on the sharp side. Like we were kind of, the back wheels were kind of bumping over curbs and the uh, tree limbs that we were going past were kind of dragging alongside the, the bus, scraping the, the side of the bus. And I thought to myself, I wonder how long this person's been driving a bus. <laughs> but we made it to our destination just fine. We went in, we watched James and the Giant Peach. We got back, we boarded the bus, and then they wanted to take us over to a playground. And so that's what we did. We went over to a playground. The kids ate, uh, ate their lunch, played on the playground. And then we boarded back on the bus to head back to the school. However, we had parked next to a, a big ditch. And as we began to, to round the corner, the back wheels started to go down into that ditch. And the bus driver, instead of leaving the wheel turned the direction that it was and just backing out and then making a wider turn, she turned the wheel the other way and started to back up, putting the front wheels then going down into the ditch. And then she did the same thing and turned the wheel back, making even a sharper turn, driving those back wheels again into the ditch. And when I saw that she was about to do it again, I said, stop, stop, stop the, stop the bus. Let me get out and assess the situation. 
So I got out, and it's a good thing that I did because our back wheels were just several inches from dropping off about a three-foot concrete culvert, which would have probably rolled the bus. And of course, she was beside herself at this point, like when she realized what, what she was doing. She was like, what do I need to do? I was like, well, first thing we need to do is we need to get the kids off the bus, right? If we're going to try to correct this situation, we don't need kids on the bus and those wheels going you know, down off that culvert. So she's like, okay, let's, let's do that. And she's like, okay, so we got the kids off the bus. Now what do I do? I'm like, well, I can walk you through kind of what to do. I can't do it for you. I don't have my CDL. I'm not on your insurance, uh, but I can tell you what to do. And she's like, okay, wait. And in a moment of wisdom, she said, I'm going to call the school, and they'll send somebody who's more experienced to undo the situation. And that's exactly what happened. She called the school, and she, you know, she didn't really want to. She was kind of ashamed at the fact that she'd gotten herself in this predicament. But she called the school, and they sent someone over more experienced to undo the situation that she had gotten herself into. And they brought another bus for the kids, and everything worked out fine. But life's kind of like this, isn't it? That sometimes we find ourselves in a big mess. And sometimes we need somebody to yell, hey, hey, stop the bus. Look around you. Look at the destruction that you're causing. And when it comes to sin and repentance, we need to realize that we always need God's help. It's not just a sometimes. That we need God to show us our sin, to make us realize our sin. We need God to cause us to admit our sin and confess our sin to him. We need God to change our desires, that we would desire him more than that sin that we're chasing. And ultimately, we need God to cleanse us from that sin. And this is going to be our main point for today. Our biggest problem is God's wrath against us because of our sinful rebellion against Him. The only solution to our problem is God graciously giving us repentant hearts that seek forgiveness in Him, as well as change desires for Him above all else. So where I want to start today is in the superscription. That's the part that, that starts there with to the choir master. And I want to start there because I think we're going to get some good background information as to what's going on here in this text. And uh, there's some debate on these superscriptions uh, of whether or not they were added at a later date or if they're part of origi the original scripture. And I believe that they're fully God-breathed and I believe that they're part of the original. Um, some people would say otherwise. But Peter Gentry says this, Most English Bibles display the superscriptions in fine print. This suggests to the modern reader that these superscriptions are secondary in some way. But this is not what we find in our best manuscripts. All evidence suggests that we should respect the psalm titles as part of the original text of the Psalter at the book. And so that's the way that I'm going to treat uh, these superscripts because that's, that's my belief here. So let's look there at that superscript starting with To the Choir Master. To the Choir Master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him, after he had gone in to Bathsheba. So allow me to give us a little bit of background, even though you may already be very familiar with this story about David and Bathsheba. David is in Jerusalem at a time when kings are supposed to be at war. He gets up from his comfy couch in the afternoon, mind you, to stroll on his rooftop. He sees a very beautiful woman sitting down below, and he inquires of his servants about the woman, to which they reply, yeah, that's Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Now, keep in mind that Uriah is a faithful servant of David, off at war where David should be as well. Nevertheless, David calls Bathsheba to himself in order to lay with her. And after cleansing herself of the defilement, Bathsheba sends word to David that she's pregnant with David's child. So David conjures up a plan that he will call Uriah home from battle so that he will go home and lay with Bathsheba 
and then it will appear that her pregnancy is actually from Uriah. However, Uriah, being the faithful servant that he is, refuses to go home while the other soldiers are out in the field of battle. This, of course, contrasting David and his indifference to enjoying such luxuries while his men serve him while he lives the high life. So with his first plan failing, he results to placing Uriah at the very front lines of the battle so that he will intentionally be killed. And that's exactly what happened according to the plan of David. And so at this point, God sends Nathan the prophet to come and to convict David of his sin. And so I want us to turn there, if you will, 2 Samuel 12. I'm going to read 1 through 15 so that we can see Nathan's rebuke of David. 2 Samuel 12, verse 1 through 15. And the Lord sent Nathan to David, and he came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the, to, uh, to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock of the herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. And then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold, because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul, and I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms, and gave the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you so much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword, and have taken his wife to be your wife, and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now therefore... The sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you and out of your house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor. And he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all of Israel and before the sun. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. And then Nathan went to his house. And so what I want us to see here is two things. One is that God is at work in both of these men's lives, right? Clearly God is at work in the life of Nathan the prophet. And he's giving Nathan the prophet the courage to go before David and actually call him out on his sin because this could have gone really sideways for Nathan, right? I mean, David's already demonstrated that he's on this, this escapade of killing people for get, getting in his way. And Nathan could have been viewed as one more obstacle in his way. And he could have certainly have had Nathan killed for coming to him in this way. But then I want us to see here that, that God's really present in the heart of David here. Because David could have rejected everything that Nathan had to say, right? But he doesn't. In fact, he says that I have sinned against the Lord. And it's my hope today for us to lay out six aspects of true repentance that we can see here in this text so that hopefully we can model our repentance after David's. I believe that it is important that we hit every one of these aspects 
Because if we are missing any of these, it might mean that our repentance isn't really repentance, as these aspects are all intertwined. And I think this is a, a, blueprint, a blueprint in Psalm 51 of what repentance, repentance should look like for the people of God. Right? And so David going through all of this is for our benefit. Because as he cries out to God, we're going to see that that's a blueprint for what it should look like for us. And one more note that we may be tempted to see this text as one of those instruction manuals for unbelievers to repent. And of course it could be. But one of the things that I love about this text is that it shows a man who has already been justified through faith alone who has lost sight of God's holiness. He has lost sight of the fact that God is better than any of his fleshly desires. He has lost the joy that he once had. And so we are reminded by the words of Martin Luther, which he nailed to the door at Wittenberg. Jesus Christ will the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. That this isn't something that we just do one time. That all of our lives should be a life of repentance because none of us have arrived. So let's take a look at these six aspects of true repentance. And you should have a, a, a handout, right, in your bulletin. And that's going to help you to track with me because we're going to be jumping all over this text. We're going to be going from one verse to another and we're not just going in order. So that will, will help you kind of track with me if you have that, that handout. Let me go through these six aspects of true repentance that I see within our text. One, our depravity relieved. Two, the holiness of God perceived. Three, the supremacy of God believed. Four, our sin and rebellion against God both confessed and grieved. Five, an appeal to God with a desperate plea. Six, God's promise to cleanse sinners received. And then finally, what's the point of all this repentance? God's ultimate purpose for repentance is his glory and the joy of his people achieved. So let's just go right there to uh, number one, our depravity relieved. And the reason that I wish to start here is that it will help us to see God's role in our repentance. When we understand that we are born into this world in a helpless state and that all of our desires are naturally hostile toward God, then we will quickly see that our repentance is not only something that God responds to, but it actually begins with God. That is to say that we would never repent were it not for God relieving our depravity by giving us a heart that desires to repent. Jump down to verse 5 there in Psalm 51. David says to God, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. And despite what many people have tried to make this text say by doing hermeneutical gymnastics, that means taking a, a text and you know, trying to make it say what you want it to say, David is not saying that he was brought forth due to the sinful actions of his mother. No, he's confirming the doctrine of total depravity, that from the moment of conception, he was in sin because of the federal headship of Adam, his father, all of our fathers, which is the case for all of humanity. He's not using that as an excuse for his sin. He's recognizing that he is responsible for his rebellion against God, but also that he's incapable of doing anything pleasing to God if God does not work that good in him. And this includes David's repentance. Did you know that we would never repent of our sin if God did not first act on our rebellious hearts to make us willing to repent? Did you know that your repentance is a gift from God? Your repentance was not brought about by your morally neutral free will. No, your will was bound in the chains of sin. You did not desire God. You did not desire to please him. But God graciously changed your will just like he did for David if you have been a repentant person of God. We see this reality actually laid out in 1 Timothy 2.24. Paul is speaking to some 
uh, believers about how they should conduct themselves around unbelievers. And he says you need to act this particular way because perhaps God may grant them repentance. Not that he will honor their repentance. No, he might grant them repentance. Listen to, to Paul's words here. The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. Listen, God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of truth, and they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. So we are all born into this world, captured under Satan. We are captured to do his will, and it takes a miraculous work of God to cause us to want to repent before God, and it is a gift that God gives his people. God must grant repentance, or we will continue to do the will of Satan. Secondly, we see David affirming his need for his depravity to be relieved in verse 12. He says to God, Uphold me with a willing spirit. David here is saying, Lord, if you don't change my spirit, I'm in deep trouble. On my own, my spirit does not desire good. On my own, my spirit desires to serve my immediate satisfaction. On my own, I get lazy and sleep around with other men's wives and then have them murdered. Lord, give me a willing spirit. Have you prayed this way? Have you seen your depravity apart from God and asked him to make you willing to be obedient to his commands? If not, perhaps it's because you have not seen the holiness of God. This brings us to the second aspect of true repentance. The holiness of God perceived. Look with me, if you will, there at verse 4. David states, Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Now, obviously, David is not saying here that he hasn't sinned against Uriah or Bathsheba, uh, but he's overwhelmed by the holiness of God. That is, God is completely other than created beings. That in comparison, his sin against man and his sin against God, there's, a, there's an infinite chasm in between those two things. They can't even get, be compared. To sin against God is what R.C. Sproul calls cosmic treason. Listen to what he says. Sin is treason against a perfectly pure sovereign. It is an act of supreme ingratitude toward the one whom we owe everything, to the one who has given life itself. Have you ever considered the deeper implications of the slightest sin? What are we saying to our Creator when we disobey Him at even the slightest point? We're saying no to the righteousness of God. We're saying, God, your law is not good. My judgment is better than yours. Your authority does not apply to me. I'm above and beyond your jurisdiction. I have the right to do what I want to do, not what you command me to do. The slightest sin is an act of defiance against cosmic authority. It is a revolutionary act, a rebellious act, in which we are setting ourselves in opposition to the one whom we owe everything. It is an insult to his holiness. We become false witnesses to God when we sin as the image bearers of God. We are saying to the whole of creation, to all of nature under our dominion, to the birds of the air, to the beasts of the field, this is how God is. This is how your creator behaves. And that's a lie, isn't it? When we sin, we are making a liar of God. And David is becoming increasingly aware of just how sinful we humans are as God continues to reveal his holiness to, God, uh, to David. Now you might say to yourself, well, this isn't new for David, right? Isn't David already aware of God's holiness? Well, this one's going to take a little bit of digging, but I think I can show you how there's been this transformation in David's awareness of God's holiness. And it's going to, we're going to need to go back to 2 Samuel chapter 6. And if you remember what's going on there in 2 Samuel chapter 6, this is just a few chapters before we get to David and Bathsheba, and David goes on his little tirade. 
What's, what's going on there? Well, they're transporting the ark. And they were supposed to be transporting the ark on, uh, by poles. And instead, they have this ark up on a cart, despite what God has said needs to be done. And the oxen are pulling the cart, and the oxen begin to stumble, and the cart begins to fall. And one of uh, David's men, Uzzah, reaches out his hand to steady the ark. And listen to what happened. The anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error, and he died there beside the ark of God. Seems pretty harsh, huh? David thought so. Listen to David's response. And David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah. You see, David was not perceiving the holiness of God. David was questioning God's good and holy judgment. R.C. Sproul continues to help us out. He says, not only was Uzzah forbidden to touch the ark, he was forbidden even to look at it. He touched it anyway. He stretched out his hand and placed it squarely on the ark, steadying it in place, lest it fall to the ground. An act of holy heroism? No. It was an act of arrogance, a sin of presumption. Uzzah assumed that his hand was less polluted than the earth. But it wasn't the ground or the mud that would desecrate the ark. It was the touch of man. The ground doesn't commit cosmic treason. There's nothing polluted about the ground. God did not want his holy throne touched by that which is contaminated by evil. That which was in rebellion to him. It was man's touch that was forbidden. Uzzah was an, not an innocent man. He was not punished without a warning. He was not punished without violating a law and failing to see God's holiness. David was angry with God's judgment. But something had changed in David, right? Something had changed between the time of Uzzah and this incident and David's prayer here in Psalm 51. We might expect David to say to God's judgment uh, that it's unfair. You can't take the life of, of my son. He didn't even do anything. But that's not what we get, is it? Look there at verse 4. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. God has revealed his holiness to David. And so David has come to see God's blamelessness in whatever God decides to do, even in the death of David's own son. Have we perceived the holiness of God? Or are we bitter toward God about certain circumstances within our own life? May he grant us to see his holiness more clearly. Third aspect of repentance that I see in our text today is the supremacy of God believed. Look there at verse 11 and 12. David says, Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. See, the greatest news in all of creation is that God is willing to reconcile us to himself despite our rebellion against him. That is what it means to be saved. There's nothing greater that God can give us than himself. The mansions in the sky, the streets of gold, even family members that have been saved, those are great things that will be with them forever, but they're not ultimate things. The greatest thing about our salvation is that we get God face to face. David had lost his joy in this reality. He had begun to believe that there was greater joy in lounging on his couch, that there was greater joy in fulfilling his lust that there was greater joy in using others to accommodate his pleasure. David needed God to rekindle the fire that once burned for his Savior. One commentator says this, he says, It's important to note here that David's not praying that God would restore his salvation, as if he had lost it and needed to get it back again. It is not the salvation that he had lost, but the joy of it. As long as he was living in sin, he had no joy. His fellowship with God was broken. And this is a 
a fundamental difference that we need to understand, that there's a, there's a difference between our union with God and our communion with God. And in our union with God, if we are in Christ, that cannot be broken. There's no one who can strip us out of his hands. We are his, and that is a, a done deal. But our communion is a different story. Our communion is constantly in flux. Our awareness of God's love for us and his presence is a fickle thing. And David had drifted in his communion with God. Maybe his meditation on God's word had become less. Maybe his, medita- uh, maybe his prayers had become lackluster and dull. David needed to be shown by God once more that God is greater than any other desire that he, we may have. We see David grabbing hold of this reality in Psalm 27. He says this, The Lord is my light and my salvation. One thing have I asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. Listen, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. Of all the things that David could have asked for, he could have asked for more wives. He could have asked for more children. That's not what he asked for. He asked, can I, can I gaze upon your beauty, Lord? That's what I want to see forever and ever. That is the thing that is the best and most supreme thing that we could see is Christ forever and ever. One definition of repentance that seeks to emphasize our need to see Christ as supreme is this. Repentance is finding in Christ what you thought could be found elsewhere. That is to say that those sinful things that we were pursuing, we need to have our minds changed so that we will turn toward Christ. And Christ is, we need to see Christ as better than those things, more supreme than those things. And when we see that we have desired other things more than God, it ought to grieve us. And we need to confess that to God. So that's our fourth aspect of repentance. Our sin and rebellion against God both confessed and grieved. Verse 3, David confesses his sin in a psalm that was not just between he and God, but meant for the communal use of Israel. He says, For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. And we must remember that David doesn't specifically name which sin in particular that he's confessing for a reason. This psalm is meant to be a template for all believers whose sin manifests itself in thousands of different ways. Nevertheless, two things are evident here. David confesses his sin before God, and he confesses it before the people of God. We would do well to follow David's example here in confessing our sin to God and to one another. But being specific about our sins that we are confessing also has a value. David is not just confessing that he's a sinner. He's saying, I know my transgressions. I know the specific sins I have committed against God. We oftentimes will confess our sinfulness without confessing our actual sins for several reasons. One, everyone is a sinner, so to confess our sinfulness really isn't that hard for us, is it? I mean, I'm only human after all. But in confessing specific sins, we are forced to look at just how rebellious we really are and the frequency with which we break his commands. And we don't confess specific sins because we don't want to change. If I admit that what I'm doing is sinful, I'm convicted to stop doing that very thing, aren't I? More than just confessing our sin, we need to grieve our sin. Look at verse 8. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. David had not been, phys- David had not been physically crushed, but in his mind he might as well have been. In fact, he might argue that being physically crushed would have been less painful than the pain that he was enduring. The weight of his guilt laid so heavy on him that it was as though his bones were breaking. J.I. Packer speaks to our need of grieving our sin like David does here. He says, In repentance, a sinner out of the sight and sense not only of the danger, 
but also the filthiness and repulsiveness of his sins, as contrary to the holy nature and righteous law of God, and upon receiving mercy in Christ, so grieves for and hates his sins, as to turn from them all unto God, proposing and endeavoring to walk with him in all ways of his commandments. This statement highlights the fact that incomplete repentance, sometimes called attrition, or remorse and self-reproach and sorrow for sin generated only by fear of punishment, um, that's, that's not sufficient. True repentance is contrition, as modeled by David in Psalm 51, having at its heart a serious purpose of sinning no more, but of living henceforth a life that will show one's repentance to be full and real. In other words, it's not repentance to confess our sin, while at the same time having every intention of going on sinning in that very way we just confessed. Repentance is grieving our rebellion against God and seeking his help to turn from it. Some of you may have seen this quote by Paul Washer. He says, A great help during temptation is to remember that sin is more than just breaking a rule. It is to grieve the very person who loves us beyond measure. And to that I say, Amen. It ought to grieve our hearts to know that we're grieving the one who gave his only son to be beaten beyond recognition for us. That should grieve us. And when we find ourselves, by the grace of God, grieving our sin, what then? Number five, we make an appeal to God with a desperate plea. I use the word desperate there because that's exactly the kind of plea that David makes to God. Go back up to verse one. He says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. David knows that he has nothing to offer God. He cannot appeal to his good deeds because everything that he's ever done is tainted with sin. And besides that, even David had right, uh, even if he had righteous deeds at this point, it's not a trade-off for his sin. It's not as though God's scales are set up so that if we do enough good things, it'll outweigh the bad things. That's not the way this works. We already owed God perfection as our holy creator, and even one sin is enough to set the scales against us. So David appeals to his only hope. He knows that God is a God of abundant mercy. I had the opportunity of going and speaking with an elderly gentleman uh, several years back at, an, at another church, and he didn't actually go to our church, but one of our congregants asked if I would go speak with him. It was one of his, the, our congregants' neighbors, and he had just gotten word that he had a terminal illness. And so I went and I, I spoke with the man for a while, and um, I just point blank asked him, I said, do you know where you're going to be once you die? And he thought about it for a minute, and he said, yeah, I, I think so. I think... I think I'll go to heaven. And I said, what makes you think that? He said, well, you know, I've always taken really good care of my kids. I have worked really hard for everything that I have, and I worked really hard to make sure my kids always had everything they needed. So, yeah, I think, I think I'll be in heaven. And so I politely but urgently informed the man that his list of good things that he offered up were not good enough for entry into the kingdom of heaven. I said, indeed, these are morally good things that you've done, but even the best of what you've done is tainted with sin. And even uh, if they weren't tainted with sin, you owed God perfection as your creator, and even one sin has left you lacking. I said, the only thing that will get you into heaven is trusting that Jesus is that perfection for you, the one who actually lived that perfect life in your stead. And so I took the time to walk through the gospel with this man, and I prayed with this man. And I don't know if he ever truly trusted Christ or not, but I, I pray that he did because Jesus is this man's only hope. Jesus is our only hope. If we are to please God, we must come to him with empty hands. Look there in verse 16 and 17. 
For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. So what type of sacrifice is it that's pleasing to God? When we admit that there's nothing that we can do to right the ship. When we confess with a broken spirit, Lord, I've messed up big time. I'm at the end of my rope. There's nothing I can do to fix this mess. When we know that the only thing that we have to offer God is the sin that made the cross of Christ necessary. And when we see that the only good in us is Christ in us, we must be desperate before God. And this leads us to our final aspect of repentance. God's promise to cleanse sinners received. God has promised that he will not turn, a bro- uh, turn away a broken and contrite heart. But how can he do that? How can a, a good, just God not turn away a sinner like David? How can a holy God receive into his presence an abuser of power, a rapist, a murderer? Answer? We must receive the foolishness of the cross of Christ. In the cross of Christ, God promised to cleanse anyone who will have it. Now, David did not have the clarity of revelation that we have now as New Testament believers. Nevertheless, he was looking forward to the awaited Messiah, and he knew that God would have to be the one to cleanse him. And we see David looking to God to cleanse him in two different ways. One is his positional cleansing. That is, he knew that he had to be justified before God. He had to have uh, his position before God rectified. And the second, his practical cleansing or his sanctification, uh, that he wanted to quit doing the things that he was doing against God. And he needed cleansing in both of those ways. So let's first look at positional cleansing or his justification. David knew that he could not stand before a holy God in the filth of his sin. He knows that a day of judgment is coming and the wrath of God must be dealt with. And so he begs and trusts that God will cleanse him positionally. That is to say that David needs to be justified before God and he believes that God will do it. We see this in five different verses within our passage. Verse 1, blot out my transgressions. Verse 2, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. Verse 7, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. By the way, that that hyssop there, that's a, a branch. That's the very branch that they used to smear the blood over the door in the Passover, which was ultimately foreshadowing the coming of Christ, who would be the one who would give his blood to cover our sins. Verse 9, Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. In verse 14, deliver me of my blood guiltiness, O God. See, David doesn't know exactly how God's going to pull this off, but he does know that God can do it. And we get our answer to just how God does this in Romans chapter 3. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins, such as the sins of David. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And that word propitiation there, that means the quenching of God's wrath. That is that God's wrath burned hot against us because of our sin against him. And we needed one to stand in our place, one to be the atonement to to actually take on God's wrath for us. And that's exactly what happened at the cross of Christ for his people, that Jesus was that propitiation. And so the first type of cleansing that David asked for is justification before God. And that second type there uh, that David asked for is that sanctification, that practical cleansing. 
See, David doesn't want a right standing before God only. He wants to quit doing the sinful things that he's been doing that grieve God. So he's receiving God's promise to sanctify his people. He says in verse 6 of our passage, Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. See, David's aware that this is an ongoing process, the sanctification, that he's continually being made more into the image of Christ and that his wisdom is growing day by day and that God is the one who's doing that. God is the one who's revealing that wisdom to him. Look at verse 10. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Verse 12. Uphold me with a willing spirit. You see, David knows that if he's going to be changed, it's not going to come from some self-help book. His only hope is that God, who created something out of nothing in Genesis 1, would do the same thing within his own heart, that where there was once nothing but darkness, God would shine the light of his righteousness. That is David's hope. Our Greek word in the New Testament for repentance uh, is metanoia. It means a changed mind. It means uh, that once our mind was one way and it needs to be a different way, it needs to be God's way, right? So we, ha- we need to have our, our minds changed and our hearts changed by God. Uh, but this idea of being changed kind of fl- flies in the face of our culture, doesn't it? The, a culture that has a mantra of this is, this is who I am and you just need to love me for who I am. But that's not what God says. God says we need to change, right? And I think if we ever really want to understand the, the times, all we do need to do is look at some pop music, because pop music is going to kind of tell us what the ideas are of the, the current culture. And this particular song is about a decade old, but it still rings true for the sentiment of our current day, especially given the, the Pride Month that we're in right now, uh, so-called Pride Month. Uh, and this song is by Macklemore. It says this, Speaking of homosexuality, now this has greater implications than just homosexuality. We need to be changed in all of our sin, but this particular song is dealing with homosexuality. It says, some people think it's a decision, and you can be cured with some treatment and religion. A man-made rewiring of a predisposition, playing God, all oh, naw, here we go. America the brave still fears what we don't know, and God loves all of his little children, is somehow forgotten. But we paraphrase a book written 3,500 years ago. I don't know. I can't change, even if I tried, even if I wanted to. On one hand, Mr. McLemore is right. There's no amount of man-made rewiring and no amount of self-help efforts that are going to change someone's rebellious heart toward God. On the other hand, the Bible is emphatically clear that we must change our sinful ways. And so that we don't paraphrase a book written years ago, Mr. McLemore, allow me to read it word for word. We looked at this text just several weeks back when Tom was preaching. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the, sec- neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Listen. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So Mr. McLemore and all who are in rebellion against God, God does love all of his children, but God sees to it that his children do change. Mr. McLemore, you need God to change you. We need God to change us. And we need to believe his promises that he will But why? Why is repentance needed? What's the end goal? 
God's ultimate purpose for repentance is his own glory and the joy of his people achieved. That is exactly what we see in verses 12 through 15. David cries, Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. See, the more that we become increasingly aware of our dependence upon God to make us right with Him, and the more that we believe that God has accomplished this in the person and work of Christ for us, the more our lips will sing His praise. The more that He upholds us with a willing spirit to be obedient to His commands, the more Christ is seen as the King who is worthy to obey. And the more people that see Christ in us as we open our mouths to declare the gospel of Jesus, the more He is glorified in us and our joy is increased as we do the very thing that we were created to do to glorify God by enjoying Him forever. Let's close with this last little section there in verse 18 and 19. The psalm asks of God, Do good in Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings, and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. One commentator comments on these couple of verses here. He says, David may be speaking metaphorically, suggesting that the strength of Jerusalem is in the righteousness of its people, and that this had been weakened because of his sin and now needed to be restored. Or, he may be speaking literally, since the walls and the building of the temple were not completed until the days of Solomon. In this case, David would be praying that this important work might not be hindered by his sin and might continue. But either way, let us remember that everything that we do affects other people, whether for good or for evil. It is not true that we can sin as long as it doesn't hurt other people. Sin always hurts someone. But it is also true that those who confess their sin can find forgiveness and renewal and teach others the ways of God and become a blessing. See, regardless of which way we understand this passage, one thing is clear. It's not the sacrifices of the bulls and the goats in and of themselves that brought God pleasure. It was the hearts behind the offerings, hearts that were broken and contrite, hearts that knew that they had nothing to offer God that God hadn't first given them, hearts that looked forward to the coming Messiah for their righteousness, hearts that desired God to cleanse them and to do the work of change within them for his glory and for their joy in him. So let us now beg God that he would work that repentance within us, that he would relieve our depravity and work good within us, that he would reveal more and more of his holiness to us, that he would show us once more how much better Christ is than anything else, that he would cause us to confess and grieve our sin against him, that he would show us how desperate we are without him and cause us to cry out to him for help and mercy, that he would cause us to believe his promises of cleansing us in Christ, and finally, that he would give us great joy in knowing him and glorifying him to the rest of the world. Let's pray. Father, we're so desperate. We need you. We could never rectify our sinful state. We can't even muster up what we need to glorify you. You must work that in us. And so, Father, we pray that you would do that. We pray that we would become increasingly aware of our sin, that we would go to you, that we would grieve our sin, that we would trust that it's been taken care of in the cross of Christ. 
and that we would seek to glorify you more and more. Father, we pray that as we become repentant people, that we would not be a prideful people, that we are the repentant, but that we would look to your grace and know that it is all of grace that we are the repentant and that we would take the message of the gospel to other people, that they might have the joy that we now have. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.